Thank you, Anne, and uh, good morning, everybody. It's uh, wonderful to see you. There's outlines up the back there, and if you'd like a transcript, they'll be made available after the service. Now, I imagine that uh, many of you have heard of the term conditioning. So, it's a psychological term, and it describes the way that we are conditioned to act in certain ways in light of our experiences in life. Well, there's one particular kind of conditioning that is quite striking and it's called learned helplessness. I wonder if you've ever heard of that, learned helplessness. What it is, is it's when there's uncontrollable, stressful things that happen to you and and normally um, you'd act to avoid them happening, but they happen so regularly that we learn a sense of helplessness before them. Okay, so we come to believe that we have no power to control a situation or change it. And so what we do is we don't even try anymore. Even when opportunities to change become available, we've learned to be helpless. So we just don't do anything. We just stop trying. Now, sometimes you can see this when people are stuck in abusive relationships Sometimes it can be from unwanted addictions or habits that we cannot seem to overcome and so we just don't bother attempting to anymore. And sometimes a person can even try to rationalise or justify the very thing that's oppressing them in order to be able to cope with it. They try and re-look at it as if it's not as bad as it was because they're stuck in it, so why not? Now, why the psychology intro because sometimes I think as Christians we can feel so beaten down by life oh just in whether you're a Christian or not or or by our own destructive attitudes or behaviors that we lose any sense of hope or the will to step out in faith and actually try and work change we can become slaves meekly accepting the unacceptable, even when the power of God is right there to set us free. Now, the story so far in Exodus has been one of both hardship and hope. So, the Israelites have been in Egypt for more than 400 years, they're enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they're burdened by heavy labour, they've been oppressed for generations... Their children have been slaughtered. Their lives have been characterised by powerlessness, by toil, by death, by the sting of the whip. And now, though, they're given a glimpse of hope. We've learned out from the first four chapters of Exodus that God has seen their suffering and that he has, His compassion for them has been stirred. He's determined to bring them out of their slavery to worship Him in the land that He promised He would give them to their ancestors all those years ago. And so, by the end of chapter 4, it's looking good. Moses and Aaron report what God had promised to do and the elders of Israel, when they hear it, they bow down in worship. You get the sense where they're going, great, bring it on. Maybe, just maybe, we might know freedom. But it's now that things hit a road bump in the chapter that was just read for you. 
Now, back in chapter 3, God had warned Moses and Aaron that Pharaoh would not let them go without a mighty hand forcing them to. But their very first conversation with Pharaoh is about to show just how rough the road is going to be. And we're going to see today the impact that generations of slavery and oppression can have on their collective will. What we're going to be shown over the next 10 chapters of Exodus, we're not doing 10 today, but what we're going to see over the next 10 is nothing less than a battle of the gods. One of them will prove to be true. The other will prove to be a pretender. And this battle is going to be played out in front of a very big audience, both sets of people. Well, in chapter 5, we get to meet God number 1 the tyrant god of Egypt, Pharaoh. Now, I want to say, I'm using the word God here very deliberately. It is important that we recognise this early on. Pharaoh is not merely Egypt's king. And the battle that we're going to see over the coming weeks is not Pharaoh versus Moses. It is Pharaoh versus Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, of course, Pharaoh's not actually a god, but he did claim to be, and he was followed as a god. Uh, Pharaoh saw himself as the lord of the land of Egypt in more than a political sense. He was a living god, governing even the land itself with the power of the gods. And there are quotes from this very time in history where the pharaohs say this of themselves. And standing in front of Pharaoh on this day, I want you to picture this, is two old Hebrew octogenarians whose people are his slaves in his land. And they come before him to make a demand of him, the living God of Egypt. Look at verse 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, what God says through Moses is get straight to the point. In the original, it's only five Hebrew words, right? This is punchy. But we learn a whole lot about who we're dealing with when we hear Pharaoh respond. It could not be more dismissive. And it's the key verse that sets up all of the drama to come over the next few weeks. It's almost poetic in its contempt. Uh, If you look at verse 2 there. With one line, he poses both a rhetorical question and then the second line gives the answer. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And you can get the sense of what he's saying, right? Who is this Yahweh that you're talking about? Nobody. I've never heard of him. And as if I, the divine Lord of Egypt, should obey the command of some unknown God that's being worshipped by my slave workforce. You're dreaming. Absolutely not. Pharaoh says, I don't know Yahweh, who is he? Well, let me tell you, that 
is what the rest of Exodus is really going to answer for everybody. Who is Yahweh? And he's not going to answer just for Pharaoh. It's not going to just be answered for the Egyptians, but it's going to be the answer that the Hebrews are going to learn as well. Who exactly is their God? And by the time the Lord has finished doing what he does, they will all know who the Lord is and just how important obeying his word really is. But in that moment and at that time, Pharaoh's stern answer has clearly intimidated Moses and Aaron. First, straight off, the very first conversation and they're stepping onto the back foot straight away. Verse 3, the God of Hebrews, the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God or, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Now the first part of that is exactly what God told them to say to Pharaoh back in chapter 3 verse 18 but the last bit isn't God never threatened his people back in chapter 3 he did make a threat he the threat is pointed at Pharaoh and the Egyptians and Moses and Aaron go oh no it's all it's really all about us it was the Egyptians that God promised to strike not the Israelites And yet, what does Moses say? Come on, Pharaoh, our God will punish punish us if you don't let us go, please. It's as if they're giving Pharaoh the chance to be the magnanimous one, while their Lord, the Lord, comes off as some sort of harsh, tyrannical God. Doesn't look good, does it? This is not a shining moment in the history of Moses. But, do you ever find yourself tempted to do that? When others challenge you on what the Bible teaches, on what your God has spoken. To say what God says, but in the way that you say it, you actually undermine God's Word or you apologise for it at the same time. Do you ever do that? Like a Christian cringe... Maybe it's about his judgment that you go, kind of, yeah, you will judge. Or what he says about how we should live or how we shouldn't live. He's the good God who's spoken to you, but you talk about it to others as if it's like, we've got to just roll with this. As if we're conceding that God's ways are harsh or unreasonable, even as we're trying to persuade other people that they should listen to him. It's an easy trap to fall into. It's what Moses falls into, but it's not good. Well, if Moses and Aaron thought that Pharaoh cared for their well-being of his Hebrew slaves, they're kidding themselves. His contempt for their God extends to them. Nah, you're all just lazy, he says, and you're trying to get out of work. I mean, they're doing all the work, he's doing nothing, but they're the lazy ones, apparently. And for daring to even ask this, Pharaoh resolves to teach them all a lesson. Now, the way that the workforce operated in ancient Egypt, as you'll see on this sort of screen up there, was was that the work of the Israelite slaves there down the bottom was overseen by other Israelites 
who were put in charge of them and they were the ones who were held to account. So they had to provide, they had to make sure that the quotas were met and then there were Egyptian slave drivers who were over the top of them who made sure that those overseers did provide what their quota was and did what they were told or they would cop a beating or worse. And again, that this was actually a pattern in ancient Egypt is well attested in the, in the history sources from the time. Now, the other detail you'll have noticed when it was being read for us is that there was this issue about bricks and straw, right? Bricks were made by mixing clay with straw and what the clay, the straw did was it would make the clay more malleable and mouldable and it would also stop it shrinking when it dried. So if you wanted to keep bricks as the right good size, you, you would use straw. And so what Pharaoh does is in order to demoralise the Israelites... He tells the slave drivers and overseers to make the same number of bricks that they always made, but he wasn't going to give them any straw. They still had to make it with straw, but he wasn't going to give them any. Now remember, the existing workload, the existing quotas had them crying out to God in their suffering because of how oppressive that slavery was and now on top of that they've got to go out and before they even start find enough straw to build it all with. Pharaoh is going to work them so hard that they will not even be thinking of worshipping any God anywhere at any time. They're going to be worked to the bone and so Pharaoh's oppressive orders become implemented throughout the land verse 10. When the slave drivers and the overseers went out, said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. And it's quite emphatic. Not one bit am I going to reduce your workload. And notice that beginning there. This is what Pharaoh says. It's the same phrasing that's often used of, this is what the Lord says. It's just like they are Pharaoh's prophets, declaring the word of their divine king to those under his domain. You are my subjects and you will do my will. And Pharaoh is a vindictive and tyrannical God. And so the people labour even harder. And the slave drivers kept driving them. Not one brick less, not one brick less. And when the people inevitably fail to meet the impossible quota, well, it's the Israelite overseers that get beaten the worst. And so the Israelite overseers go back to Pharaoh and look closely at their words in verse 15. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw and yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten but the, but the fault's with your own people. Now what do you notice in those verses? I want you to notice two things. First, the words appealed to Pharaoh, that's actually the very same phrase that was used back in chapter 2, when in their distress, they groaned and cried out, they appealed to God. And that cry was heard by the Lord. But this cry, who do they give it to? Pharaoh. As if he was their God. Will he listen? 
Second thing to notice is what did they call themselves? Look at those verses again. Three times. Do you notice it? Three times they describe themselves as Pharaoh's servants. Now, the word serve there is the very same word used that when God says, I want you to call them out of, my, my, out of Egypt so they might come and worship me, it's the same word, that they might come out and serve me. See, a big theme of the book of Exodus is who and how Israel are to serve. And at the moment, even though they are his slaves, they're calling out to and serving Pharaoh. But again, if they're expecting a sympathetic answer, they're sorely mistaken. Pharaoh has zero compassion for them. They're going to learn the hard way to have no other gods before him. Verse 17, Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy, and that's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Well, Pharaoh is making a point and they get the message. And this is an unmitigated disaster. And it's Moses and Aaron that get the blame, almost like they were false prophets. Verse 20, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. Literally, you've made our smell to stink. Right? We are a stench in Pharaoh's nostrils. And what's more, you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. See, not only have they learned helplessness, but they badly want to be found pleasing in the eyes of their abuser. And then Moses, in turn, takes it out on God. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is that why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. And so you really cannot underplay the frustration in Moses' words here. The mission is a failure. The Lord's made it worse than it was before. It's as if Moses now actually believes what he implied to Pharaoh a bit earlier that I was talking about, that God has it in for his own people and for him as well. He's being played the fool. You sent me to fail. You sent me literally to bring evil on your own people. You promised rescue and you've done the opposite. Like that's pretty stinging. It's as if they'd completely forgotten what God had told them was going to happen. That Pharaoh's heart would be hard. It's not like he didn't say that's what was going to happen. But in one chapter, hope and worship has suddenly become resentment, accusation and despondency. They're so used to oppression and they're so used to being weak and powerless that they see any resistance as futile and they have become resigned to their fate. It's as if the tyrant has won. But then... God gets to speak and the compassion 
and the assurance that he gives is in stark contrast to the other God, both to Pharaoh's oppression, but also to Moses and the people's doubts. And the first thing that God has to say, he says, oh, you say, Moses, that he won't, but I'm saying he will. It's it's almost as if the Lord's actually waiting for Pharaoh to do what he just did. Waiting for Pharaoh to show his hard heart before he would act to save them. Look at the language of verse 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, now, now that Pharaoh's done that, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So not only are the Israelites going to be freed, you notice that end result there, but what's God going to do? He's going to make make sure that it's going to be Pharaoh himself that does the driving out. He, Pharaoh, is the one that drives them out of the land. The very one who is stubbornly and contemptuously dismissing Moses' words is himself going to be the one that forces the Israelites to leave. Get out the door, people. Pharaoh's going to say it. And that's going to be Yahweh's doing to him. You see what he's saying? The pretend God is going to be bent to the will of the true and living God. There's going to be no doubt as to whose word really counts. The one who scoffs at obeying Yahweh's word is going to end up fulfilling it to the letter. Yahweh is going to make Pharaoh's stubborn heart just as firmly resolved to send them out as he has been to keep them as slaves. That's how he's going to work his power. But you know, from us watching on, we might easily sit back and go, gosh, Yahweh, why would you do that? Why would God do this? Especially given what we've just read about in chapter 5, the faithlessness, not only of his people, but even of the man that he chose to lead them, who's sitting there rebuking him, because Pharaoh is more powerful than he is. Why does he do it? Because God is faithful and compassionate, even when we fail. Because God has, he also will. That's what we see in verses 2 to 5. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known fully to them. I also established my covenant with them and to give them the land of Canaan where they reside as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. What has Yahweh done. He has remembered. Now, I'm going to make a brief aside about verse 3 there that might be raising some questions in your mind. We know from having looked at Genesis, right, over the last three years, that God did make himself known in the book of Genesis by his name, Yahweh, the Lord. He does make himself known in Genesis. You can see that in Genesis 15 verse 7, in chapter 17, verse 1, in chapter 22, verse 14, and elsewhere. And his name, the Lord, or Yahweh, is strongly connected in the book of Genesis to the promise of the land that he was going to give to them. Now, the issue here is that more recent 
Hebrew scholars actually suggest that verse 3 is better translated as a rhetorical question, which can happen in the Hebrew. It can be a statement or it can be a rhetorical question. So instead of saying, for instance, um, by my name the Lord I did not make myself fully known, and by my name the Lord did I not make myself known to them. Right? So the point that he is making here is that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob knew him as God Almighty, that is, the God who had power over all other gods, but did they not also know him as the one who personally promised to be their God and to give them the land of Canaan? With a presumed answer to that rhetorical question, yes, he did. And you go read the book of Genesis and you go, yes, he did. So what God is now saying to Moses is, I have made a covenant to your ancestors to give them the land of Canaan. I have heard your groaning under slavery. And so regardless of what this Pharaoh might say, I will keep that covenant. And what comes next is a very serious promise. Now, what I'm, I'm not sure what you say when you're trying to convince someone of exactly how serious the truth is that you're about to tell them. Now, uh, I haven't told Amanda I'm going to do this, but anyway, my wife Amanda and her sister Susie, all right, have got this funny phrase that they tend to use when they really mean business. Um, My parents will know this one as well, the word of honour, right? So I'm not sure where they got it from, um, but they've been saying it since they were kids, it was quite funny to watch. But, But when they say it, they really mean what they are saying. So it might go like this, word of honour, I lent you that skirt. Word of honour, you will give it back, or word of honour, I will never lend that skirt to you again. And it plays out sort of like that. But on on a more serious note, it's just that kind of way that people often reinforce what they're saying with an oath. Something that says, listen, I'm not lying. I really mean it. And I'm saying this because I want you to know that I really mean it. Well, God has already done something similar in verse 2. Did you see it there? He begins His word that He's going to keep His covenant by reminding Moses of who He is. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And this message, in this message, He tells Moses to pass on to the Israelites. He does it twice. He begins and ends what he is about to say by a reminder of who he is. In verse 6 and verse 8, he says, he begins and ends this by saying, I am Yahweh, this is what I'm going to do, I am Yahweh. As the writer of Hebrews points out, there is nothing greater for the Lord to swear by than by his own name. It is God giving the ultimate word of honour and he does it twice. So that tells you how important this is. And what does he commit to doing in between? Well, I'm going to get you to do some work. We'll do a bit of an exercise. I'm going to give you 20 seconds or so. Make sure you've got a Bible in front of you. I want you to look at verses 6 to 8. And I want you to count how many times you read the expression, I will. Okay, go for it. You've got 20 seconds. This is what God is going to promise to do. How many times does He say, I will?
All right, that maybe is enough time. Anyone want to have a, how many? Seven. No, the you will. There's a you will in there. There's seven I wills, okay? There's seven of them. In between two statements of I am Yahweh, seven promises, I am Yahweh. It's not an accident. The Bible doesn't throw the number seven around just for fun. It's God's number. It's the number of creation. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of rest. It is the number of completion. And God says, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I'll bring you into the land I swore with uphanded, um, uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a, as a possession. A to Z, one to seven. The first three promises liberate about liberating them from slavery the second two promises are that having freed them he's going to make them his own people and become their god the arrangement is going to get formalized contractualized and then the last two promises are that he will bring them to the land he's promised and give it to them to keep from egypt to sinai to canaan their redemption is going to be like a new work of creation a people dead in their slavery graciously given a new identity as God's own people and in fulfilment to his promises given their own land as an inheritance. Is this at all starting to sound familiar? As surely as his name is the Lord, this will be what it will be. And why? The you one, that they might truly know him. Look at verse 7 right in the middle there. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And what does that tell you about really knowing God? To know God properly is to go beyond just understanding his power, that he is God Almighty, but to knowing him as your Lord, as your Saviour, as your Redeemer. Now it's an impressive promise. But what happened when Moses passed it on to his people? But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. And that word discouragement is literally shortness of breath. It's like the spirit has been sucked out of them. Israel had learned helplessness. And we should resist the temptation to being too judgmental of them here. Don't you think? They've been in Egypt for over 400 years and their children had been massacred and they couldn't do anything to stop it. And they got, had no might and no power and no army and no wealth and no earthly prospect of escape. And just when they get their hopes up, Pharaoh goes at them twice as hard. I'm not going to point the finger at them. So when Moses comes back and says, no, God really meant it, can we really blame them for not getting excited again? And yet look at verse 10. God says to Moses, get back in Pharaoh's face and go tell him to let my people go. 
But Moses too is running out of puff. Because if his own people aren't going to listen, what chance does he have with Pharaoh? Well, at this point, the narrative steps to the side for a while, gives us a genealogy uh, focused on the descendants of Levi. And what that's doing is it's preparing us for later in the book when the priesthood will be set up and it gives us the genealogical background to Moses and to Aaron. But the thing to notice about it, just in summary, is that it's featuring Aaron in particular because he's going to be playing a big role in the events to come. We know a bit about Moses already, but we haven't heard much about Aaron. That's kind of what that's doing. And at the end of chapter 7, verse 30, we return to the same words that Moses spoke before. Why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? The Israelites doubted, Moses doubted, but notice how determined God is. He says, you must tell Pharaoh everything I tell you, because in the coming showdown of the gods, the Lord says, you are going to be standing as me. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet and you are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country and what a showdown it's going to be. You can see that over the next couple of weeks because you see Pharaoh is going to refuse to listen to what God says through Moses. The Lord himself is actually going to make sure that Pharaoh's already hard heart, and I hope you've seen that today, Pharaoh had a pretty hard heart to begin with, is going to stay that way. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites... See what God's saying? He says, I'm going to use Pharaoh's stubbornness. And by the time he's done with it, no one's going to be asking the question, who is Yahweh? The Hebrew people who for over 400 years have learned to be helpless will see with their own eyes that with the Lord as their God, they have all the help they need. And it won't just be them that will learn the power of Yahweh. Verse 5, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Now, what we're going to continually be coming back to throughout this term is the fact that the Exodus is not ultimately about the Exodus. The Exodus is the gospel of Jesus foreshadowed in the Old Testament. One of the greatest demonstrations, greatest foreshadowings of the gospel of Jesus. It's the great act of salvation for one nation that sets the pattern for the way that God will save people from all nations from our greatest slavery, our slavery to sin and death. You're going to hear that again and again and again because that's what it's about. And today's passage gives us a window into the nature of that slavery and the God who promises salvation from it. The life of the Hebrews was unfulfilling toil on behalf of an uncaring ruler in a journey that just ends in death. And that is life under the reign of sin too, isn't it? 
the tyranny of an enslavement that we've got no power in ourselves to escape. Helpless in the face of our own repeated selfishnesses that we just can't stop doing, our failures, our frailty, our ageing, our weakening bodies and the tyranny of living in a broken world that's full of broken people. That is the world we live in. Why bother resisting? Why not just lie back? Why not just accept it all? Why not just let it rule you? Follow the path of least resistance and make the most of it until death just ends it all. Because you're not helpless. That is a lie of the evil one, that you're helpless. We may not have the power to free ourselves from all of this, but God sure does. And he promises to. And that is what he promises to do for all of those who are enslaved by sin and death and who put their hope in him. He will liberate you. In this passage, we see the unconditional, gracious nature of God's compassion and his care for his broken and discouraged people. And the contrast between Pharaoh and him just makes it super clear. It's a grace and compassion made even more stark when you look ahead to Jesus. Our Saviour, who not only cares for his wayward people, but actually bears our burdens for us, who actually takes upon himself the full weight of our oppression, of our sin, and even takes our death for us on the cross. As surely as the risen Jesus lives... He frees us from our slavery to sin. He makes us his own and he will lead us to the eternal life he's promised. He will do it. He is the Lord from beginning to end. And that is his call. Come out of Egypt. Be freed from your toilsome slavery. Come to him. Worship him. Serve him. As Jesus says, and we read earlier, come to me, he says, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you the rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find your rest, find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, you look at King Jesus and King Pharaoh, and my goodness. Now, if you're feeling particularly weighed down, the moment. What a beautiful promise this is to hold on to. God's powerful grace is there for you. Jesus says, give your burdens to me. I love the way the hymn, And Can It Be, sings of this wonderful freedom. Uh, It's the fourth verse. You know, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray and I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And I rose and went forth and I followed thee. And what if you've already done this? Well, as that song just said, your heart's now free. Stop living under your old slave master. Yeah? 
Stop toiling for what will not satisfy in obedience to a tyrannical spirit that's got no love for you. Stop giving in when God's power has freed you from sin's power and when his powerful spirit dwells within you. What makes you think you are still a slave? You are not a slave to sin and death. Don't live like you are. You've switched gods and you're now ruled by the God of righteousness and grace. As Paul writes in Romans 6, and I'll finish with this, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. And when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. But what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord, praise Him for that.